Good morning, Springville. Uh, my name is Dustin, and I'm one of the pastors here, if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you. Uh, first of all, I just want to say congratulations to the three baptismal candidates this morning. Uh, that's a big deal. Uh, baptism, baptism Sunday is always crazy. Like, I just sit there trying not to cry um, before I have to get up here and do this, right? Um, so it just, again, congratulations. It's a big moment. And as a church family, we're so happy uh, to celebrate that with you. Uh, Springville, this is the time of year. Sorry to bring it up. That, we need to start thinking about like doing life again and getting like the marks of the Muskoka chairs off of our backs. Uh, when we start thinking about hoodie season, which is my favorite season. And when we start unfortunately remembering that that abomination of pumpkin spiced everything is soon to come. Don't email me. That's this season. And as we wrap up the book of James over the next couple weeks, I have the privilege of kind of closing this off over the next couple weeks with us. We've been looking at this series and looking at James talking about real faith, real faith that actually shows up in real life, a faith that's alive, that actually changes how we live. And over these next two weeks, he's going to kind of come back to some of the themes that he's been touching on throughout the book and throughout our study. And this week, he's specifically looking at real faith is patient, real faith is patient. Real faith is, it perseveres, it endures, it lasts. So let's go, uh, James chapter 5, verse 7 through 12, we'll read the whole thing, and then we'll look at a few things together this morning. James writes this, therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another or grumble so that you will not be judged. Look, pay attention. The judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Above all, brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no so that you won't fall under judgment. Now, it's pretty easy to see what this sermon is going to be about and what James is getting at. Four times in six verses, he calls us to be what? Patient. One of you are paying attention. That's good. Right? And twice he talks about endurance. There are different words here, but the word for patience here in the original Greek is like a settled expectant anticipation. But it's settled in that you're waiting. That something is coming. Something is about to happen. And James is pointing us to the reality that real faith is patient. It's trustworthy that it actually perseveres and endures, that real faith is marked by a hopeful anticipation of who God is and what God is about to do. This week as I worked on this, I just thought, how patient of a person am I? I ask you the same question, how patient are you? Think about this week. Don't think about like your golden age of like, I was really patient in this moment before I had children or before I had this job or before I started school or whatever it was. But if you just think about this last week, how patient are you? How do you handle delays? That's where a lot of that character comes out, right? How do you handle waiting? How do you handle that slow driver that's in the fast lane but 
for whatever reason, doesn't understand that it is that lane, right? On a scale of one to 10, if you had to just give yourself a grade of how patient you are, what would it be? Hurry up, right? This is how we feel. Today, listen, we live in the age of 5G and instant downloads. You can download an entire movie in literally 20 seconds. We live in an age of on-demand everything. Did you know that right now with streaming services, you can actually increase the speed that you're watching it at? Like you can watch Netflix at 1.5 the speed. We can't even watch things at its normal speed anymore, right? Because we're not patient enough. We have two lanes for fast food because one lane was not fast enough. And we have Amazon Prime. And that whole like two-day shipping, when that pops up, no, 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 next day, every single time. Modern life for us is not built for patience. It's not built for waiting. It's not built for a settled anticipation of what's next because we're used to getting everything right now. Our modern age is built for convenience, expedience, and same day or next day, everything. Uh, This week I read an article called, Hurry Up, Modern Patience Thresholds lower than before technology to blame. And before you like check out and you're like, there's gonna be a boomer sermon and it's gonna go back to like me saying like, there was newspapers once, right? That's not this, but what's really interesting is that the digital age definitely makes it really difficult for us to cultivate patience in our life. Uh, This article is pointing out that 50% of people close a web page after 10 seconds of loading. Guys, I'm old enough to remember when we got the internet in our home that a JPEG image would load by lines. And you would just wait, and you'd wait for the image. And they'd be like, I don't even like that image. Next image. And then you would do that again, right? But that's just not how how we're built anymore. And this article, this whole study concludes, and it says, in sum, patience is still a virtue, but it's no longer a reality. That's our age. That's the digital age of instant gratification. And it's making us more impatient. It's actually diminishing our attention span. Impatience is now being studied, not just kind of like as, as some, a, a character trait that some people have, but it's actually now being studied as an emotional state of being. That emotionally we're now unable to be fully present because we're so distracted and pulled in so many different directions and potential futures that we can't just rest and be settled in the now because we're kind of fraught with thinking about the potential future outcomes and instead of being settled in the present, we're thinking about those. That's this emotional state. And I would say I think this impatience isn't actually the root of the problem. I think it's a symptom of the root and that root is a hurried heart a sense of busyness. And today in our culture, busyness is kind of like, it's like a humble brag. Nobody likes to be busy, but we always say it like it's like this virtue, right? Just like, how you doing? I mean, good, but busy, you know, right? It's just like, hey, how's it going? Have you been keeping busy? Yeah, oh, me too, super. Why? Why do we do this? No one, like anyone in here, do you like being busy? Of course not. That's why we have Muskoka chair tans on our back, right? But but we mask it as a humble brag because to be busy is to feel important. It's to feel that we're accomplishing something, 
right? It's like, well, we're not, we're the go-getters. We're not the slackers. I've been busy. You're busy. We're all busy. It says that we matter. And if we're not careful, this can really, really creep up. I've never asked somebody how they're doing and they've answered with, I've never been less busy. Life is awesome. Never. Not even you retirees. I've never heard you say that. You've got all sorts of other things like your grass, right? And, and that's this. It, it can creep in and become a posture, a condition. And it can actually start to diminish our ability to feel well and to feel fully and be present and settled. And James is calling us to exactly that. Sociologists actually call this busyness an emotional epidemic. And there's an entire thing. I won't read it for you. You can go look it up. It's called hurry sickness. A hurry sickness. It's that when we actually always, regardless of how much time we actually have, we feel chronically short on time, even when we're not, and we get flustered with any kind of delay at all. I might be, I might be describing some of our hearts today, this week, right now. And James calls us to a faithful patience and an endurance because we're perpetually impatient. <laughs> and we're often focused on temporary things instead of eternal things on the trivial instead of what actually matters, on the urgent instead of what is actually truly important. And this week I was really convicted by one thing as I read these verses, there was a few things, but one major thing. That was when I think about my life, and I think about the worst moments of my life, my own worst behaviors or thoughts, they often happen when? When I'm impatient, when I'm in a hurry when I've maybe just kind of like had my priorities skewed so that I don't actually have the important in view, but maybe just the urgent. And I thought about that this week, but some of my worst moments are when I'm in a hurry and when I'm impatient. And I think that James is calling us back to patience because it actually points to character. That's why he finished with our words, right? Integrity of like, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Say what you mean and mean what you say right? That there's a character thing about this patient endurance that James is pointing us out. And he uses the example of farming, right? Any farmers in here? Yeah. Farming is some of the hardest, slowest, most patient work. And in Palestine, in James' day, there was an early rain, and that happened in the fall, right after sowing. And then there was a late rain, right? He mentions the late rain there. And that happened in the spring, but it was right before harvest, and most of the rain in, in ancient Palestine, actually three quarters of it, falls somewhere between like December and February. And then there's like this moment of just waiting, pending for the late rain. And then right after that late rain, guess what? Harvest, fruit. And farmers have to actually submit every year to this process, right? They work really hard, but then they actually still have to submit to the process. They can't rush it. They can't force it. They have to work hard and then wait expectantly. And James is taking patience and casting it like that. That there's nothing that can be done to speed up the process of farming. A farmer simply does what he or she does and then waits. This patient waiting produces humility in us because we're not in control. And I think that that's why many of us struggle with patience. Because all day, all week, what do we do? We control our lives. We control our finances. We control people at work. We control our own time. We, we are, we're able to do me and my little thing. And patience now starts to open my eyes up to the fact that I'm actually not in control. And even the things that I can control, those pale in comparison to all of the other variables in my life that I can't control. Are you with me on that? 
Patience calls us to remember that. And patience, a patient faith, cultivates humility in the heart of, of, of us as followers of Jesus. And James has hit humility several times already, and I think he's doing the same thing here. He's bringing it down and saying, our ability to wait expectantly and anticipate God doing what God's doing in the season is an exercise of trust, but also one of humility. And notice what James says. He tethers it to something particular here, and that's the coming of the Lord, right? And he says, until the Lord comes. Now, Usually when we talk about like the return of the Lord and the end times and the future, we do really funny things. I don't know why we do this, right? But notice what James is saying here. He's not talking about the timing of the Lord's arrival, of his coming. He's talking about the purpose of it. He's saying that there is coming a day. There is coming a time. Just as the farmer works hard, plants, sows seed, there is coming a time, a purpose where all of that is going to come to fruition, right? That's what he's getting at here. Not simply about timing, because he doesn't even address timing, but of purpose. In other words, James is saying to you and I, live as if history is moving to its decided culmination and its end purpose, because it is. That's what he's saying here. That the Lord's arrival, his parousia is the word here, which is used of the arrival of a king, the arrival of a ruler, that, that he is coming, that, that his arrival, remember James is calling for real faith in tough times, right? That the church here is being persecuted. They're not just chilling, they're being persecuted. The rich are oppressing the poor, right? The government is against them, they're being persecuted and executed for the Christian faith, and he's saying to them, this is not always what it's going to be like, there is a time coming. There is a time of fruition. Tough times should shake us out of the trance of the trivial and stir a hunger in us for Christ's return. Over 300 times in the New Testament alone, we have the return of Jesus connected to suffering, to hard times, to tough stuff, to a future hope where all wrongs will be made right. I rarely hear somebody say like, yeah, you're just like, how you, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good. You know, just got a raise. Family's killing it. House is beautiful. Life is great. Man, I really wish Jesus would return. Right? Really, though, like, think about it. That's not the people who are like, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Come right now, Lord. Please return. Please put an end to this. Please come and make all wrongs right. Like, people on Easy Street love being on Easy Street. But right here, James is reminding them not to settle. And it's so tempting, brothers and sisters, it's tempting to settle for the here and now. It's tempting to settle for the trivial. It's tempting to settle for trinkets. And he's saying, don't settle. Things are good, enjoy the good, but they are only temporary, so don't settle. He's reminding them that the day is coming, that the judge is standing at the door, knocking and waiting for the right time to enter. Do you know when my kids do the best job cleaning their rooms? when I tell them I'm about to come up and check it. I don't tell them when. I don't say like in eight minutes, not that they know time or space, but like I just say to them, I'm gonna come check your room. They do a really good job. But if, I'm, if I don't say that and I just say go clean your room, they're gonna, well, I mean, Gabriel doesn't even get to his room, you know? He's out picking up worms. But when I say like I'm about to come check out your room, the kids' rooms look very, very different. That's this kind of expectation. 
That's this kind of anticipation, that we would examine our lives and ask ourselves, are we ready? Are we actually living ready? Are we living postured with a faithful patience, but one that is humble and expectant that God is going to deliver on the promises that he has declared? That's this. And I think that James calls the church to patience because it's a reflection of God's character, that God is patient, even in the testimonies for baptism we heard today, that it's God's goodness towards us. It's God's patience towards us. It's God's invitation to us, broken sinners, off, just squandering everything he's given us, that it's his character of patience that actually enables us to experience his grace and his mercy, amen? 2 Peter 3 reminds us of exactly this. Peter says this, Dear friends, don't overlook this fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. What does that mean? I have no idea. He just says it. It's awesome. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is, what? Patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. I think James is hyperlinking to passages like that to remind us to stay ready, to be humble, and to reflect on God's goodness and his character and his patience towards sinners. Some of us don't believe what Peter just said. We think that God is just standing there tapping his foot, waiting for us to get our act together. When what we just heard is that it's his patience towards us. It's actually the fact that the judge is standing at the door, not entering as an act of mercy to give us more time to respond to his goodness and grace and mercy. That's good news, amen? That's this. That's what James is getting at here. And every time we talk about kind of like the end times and the future, um, like Peter just reminded us, you don't know the time. Like it comes like a thief. Some of you are like, I do know the time though, because I've got like charts and stuff and I've like tracked this out on an Excel sheet, I do know the time, right? But, but, but you don't, right? Like if we're just humble about this, when we talk about the end, we talk about the future, we don't know. It comes like a thief. Here's one big idea, we don't have time. Here's one big idea that I want you to understand. Every single time the Bible addresses the future and when Jesus speaks about his return, it's always for the benefit of the present, always. It's always for a call to present obedience. The point when the Bible speaks about the future is never to set an agenda for the future for us to know. It's to call us to present, faithful, patient obedience now. Jesus, almost every time he addresses the future, he says stuff like, hey, see that you're not troubled about what's to come. That's convicting, right? Some of us are very troubled. (laughs) We just think about it all the time of like, oh, what's about to come? What's about to come? Jesus is like, no, no, see that you're not troubled but be present and faithful and obedient and have a posture of faithful patience. And most of the time when Jesus himself addresses the future, it's not just a call for present obedience, but it's actually a call for present hope in the midst of pain and suffering. Why? Because, listen, human beings, we can endure almost anything when we know it's temporary. We can put ourselves through all sorts of stuff when we know there's an end to that, right? Whether it's 
physical fitness, whether it's you know, resistance training, whether it's a diet, whether it's other habits that we're trying to develop. If we know that there is an end to this thing, that there's an end run, there's a point where this won't be anymore, we can endure almost anything. And that's what I think is at work here. That James is speaking to the church who is suffering, reminding them that there is a day coming where this won't be how it is anymore. That this is temporary. That the future is coming. That, that the hope of the gospel isn't just that we have a hope for the future, but that we have a hope from the future that breaks into the present. Amen? That's what he's getting at here. And honestly, Sometimes when we think about the future, we can get distracted by speculation and get distracted by what if instead of being focused on what is. And James is drawing our eyes back to this because his big brother, Jesus, set an example of exactly that, reminding us that you don't know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future and that that is good news, that we can trust and we can stay patient and faithful looking to the Lord. Now, James gives an example of patience and endurance. And specifically, he looks at the Old Testament prophets, and then he looks at Job. Um, but before he does that, in verse 9, it's really quick. He talks about grumbling against each other. He talks about patience towards one another, right? Most of us are the most patient with ourselves. Why? Because grace for me, right? Everyone else is toxic, not me, though. Grace for me, lots of room for error and forgiveness. Other people can't wait. As soon as they stumble, cut them out. They're gone, right? He's calling for the church to not do that. Jesus' people don't do that. Jesus' people are ridiculously patient with one another. That, as Colossians 3.13 says, that we actually bear with one another. That Greek term is like we put up with each other. Right? Some of us, we think that like, life in community and coming into the church is just going to be easy street. And if only we found the right church where like, there wasn't any kind of conflict or division, then I can really follow Jesus. That's an illusion. That's not this. We're actually called to patiently extend God's grace to one another in the same way that we would experience God's grace towards ourselves. And so he says, don't grumble because you're going to be judged for that. that. That's not a good look. Right? And then he moves on to the Old Testament prophets and Job. And those two examples are great because one of them, looking at the prophets, is that the prophet's job was to speak about what God is doing and what he is going to do. And almost every prophet did not see the culmination of what they declared God was going to do. So what did that call for? Patience. Patient trust in what God was doing. And that God was going to finish what he promised. And then Job, of course, specifically Job is used as an example here of suffering of patience through suffering. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time on this because this is really important to wrestle with. Some of us believe that good, happy, enjoyable things come from God and bad, hard, challenging things mean that God is either absent or our faith is defective. Some of us believe that. It leads us to have a faith that is built on personal comfort, and being hashtag blessed, however I decide to define that. Personal comfort and happiness is the point of my faith. Therefore, my relationship with God becomes the means to the end of the true object of my faith and hope, which is my personal success and happiness. And I think that James takes our gaze and he, he brings it down to the reality of suffering. 
the universal reality of suffering. Why? Because real faith that isn't built on the person and work of Jesus Christ will not last trials. That's why. And there are three people, types of people in this room. Some of us are coming out of a trial. Some of us are in the throes of one right now. Or we are about to head into one. James is directing our eyes to the universal, inescapable reality of tough stuff, of suffering. And this kind of faith that's built on personal comfort and happiness and success, again, however I define it, is not a biblical faith. It's not one rooted in faith in Jesus because why? Jesus. Like, like I don't understand why we, why we miss this. Kind of the, the prosperity message misses Jesus. Like, I don't know if you understood this, but being executed by 33 and not like reaching the ROI on your retirement plan is not living your best life, right? Like, like we follow a loser when it comes to the definition of personal comfort, success, and happiness, unless he got up and actually conquered the grave. That's this. That's what James is pointing our eyes to. He's saying that the Christian faith He's drawing our attention to the reality of suffering and that if our hope is in a trouble-free life that we're chasing a phantom, if that our hope is in a life that we can just manicure it enough, just put enough layers of insulation around my cute little life from suffering that it is an illusion and eventually it will catch up to me. The modern secular myth, Springville, that the meaning of life is personal and individual happiness by maximizing comfort and manifesting our best life now is completely contradictory to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is really important to understand this because it's precisely because the pursuit of happiness is the goal of the Western life that we are so traumatized by any bit of loss that we are so traumatized by any bit of suffering and pain because the modern secular myth of Western individualism and humanism gives us no present comfort or future hope. It doesn't. It fails us at every single turn. Suffering can only be a meaningless interruption to my good life, right? If the point of my life is my own personal comfort and happiness, then of course, I just need to like make sure I turn down the dial as much as possible on loss and unexpected things, and I turn up the dial on control and wellness and all of my own well-being and happiness. If only I can do that, but it fails us, and it's killing us. We don't even know how to respond to minor, small bits of loss and things not going our way, let alone death and illness and major suffering. But the Christian story gives us a true and better hope. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller, who just passed away a few years ago, was well acquainted with suffering in his own life. And he wrote this, I'll let him speak to this, about this exact point. Listen, in the secular view, the meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you most happy. In that view of things, suffering can have no meaningful part it is a complete interruption of your life story. It cannot be a meaningful part of that story. In this approach to life, suffering should be avoided at almost any cost or minimized to the greatest degree possible. 
This means that when facing unavoidable and irreducible suffering, secular people must smuggle in resources from other views of life, having recourse to ideas of karma, of Buddhism, Greek Stoicism, or Christianity, even though their beliefs about the nature of the universe do not line up with those resources. He continues and and sums up this way. Christianity teaches that contrary to fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contrary to Buddhism, suffering is real. Contrary to karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. That captures the hope of the gospel. Not that we would just deflect our gaze away from pain and suffering, but that that we would take our gaze up to the only God who can take pain and suffering and make it meaningful. That's this. The Christian faith is refreshingly honest about suffering. Now listen, Christians sometimes aren't because we get away with little trite things. We say trite things to each other. That's not helpful. I love that James is so honest because he doesn't just like bypass it. Like, oh yeah, I know you guys are, you know, praying for you. No, no, no. He anchors them. He anchors them in the past promises of God the present reality of that, but yet the end purpose of all things, that there truly is a hope from the future that we can taste now, but absolutely gorge ourselves on for eternity one day. That's this. That's what he's getting at. And notice that James doesn't just kind of gloss over it and be like, hey, God, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Hey, like, just keep, keep at it, you know? Good luck. Whatever, right? Like, just trite, like trite. He doesn't, he's not trite. He's not trivial with it. I love that. What does he do? He points to God's character. If you catch that, he actually points to God's character. And he says, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He doesn't give explanations for why the church is going through what what they're going through. He doesn't offer like 11 tips and throw that on chapter's bookshelf for how to understand, you know, the suffering and make it, you know, conquer it, right? He, He just says that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And church, listen, if that's true, guess what? Even his use of pain and suffering can work towards the ends of us experiencing his compassion and mercy, if that's true. And that's the good news here. He doesn't gloss over it. And just like the pages of scripture drip with patient faith in suffering, James is calling our attention to that. And he's not just saying that bad stuff won't happen. Bad stuff will happen. But he's saying that the God The God of hope, of past, present, and future hope is the only one who can actually offer us hope in the midst of hard and bad stuff when it happens. Uh, C.S. Lewis, my uh, heavenly best friend, because we're going to be best friends, um, he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, and he said that pain insists upon being attended to. It insists upon being attended to. Because God can whisper to us in our pleasures, and he speaks to us through our conscience, but he actually shouts at us in our pain. And then he sums it up and he says that pain itself is his megaphone to wake up a deaf world. And I think James is getting at exactly that. 
because he remembers his big brother, Jesus. He remembers Jesus promising exactly this in places like John 16, where Jesus says, in this world, you will have what? Trouble. Like, this will be hard. Like, life is hard. Death sucks. Loss sucks. Pain has to be attended to, right? Like, like life is going to be, in this world, you will have trouble. Like, I don't know what prosperity theology does with that verse, but you will have trouble, but guess what? Take heart. Stand firm. Have patient faith because Jesus says what? I have overcome the world. That there's nothing in this present world that I have not overcome by the resurrection power that I offer. Therefore, in the midst of that, rest in that. In the midst of that, be anchored in that. So, why is this important? Because listen, our suburban life, our suburban Canadian dream, we're not, it doesn't build us for this. It doesn't cultivate this. It distracts us from this. And there is something, when you sit with saints, brothers and sisters who have suffered and gone through things, the way that they speak about faith and the way that they experience Jesus is so different. It's so different. And James is inviting us into that, that kind of intimate knowledge of God to show us, listen, suffering and hardship is the rule. It's not the exception. And that doesn't mean that there's something defective about you or your faith. It actually means that God might be using that to make you more effective in your faith. That it must be attended to. Maybe he's trying to rouse something up in you. Maybe he's trying to stir you from a slumber of being distracted by trinkets and triviality. Maybe that's what God is doing. But hear me. Often we won't know the reason for our suffering and our trials. But the Bible is clear about what the reason is not. The Bible is clear that what the reason isn't is that God doesn't care, is that God doesn't see, is that God doesn't feel, and that God doesn't act. It's not that. So even if we don't know the reason sometimes, the Christian hope, the gospel message is clear on what the reason isn't, and that is that God is distant or apathetic to our suffering and pain. Why? Because the good news of the gospel is that God himself took it on himself. That he actually entered into our pain. That he bears it on himself to the point of death to then offer what? A living hope that death one day will no longer touch. That's this. First Peter, Peter one more time, because I think Peter and James probably had some good discussions. First Peter chapter one about this living hope, watch this. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy, again, pointing to God's character, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into, moving forward, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's this good news. James and Peter both, and the entire swipe of scripture Point us to the past of what God has done. 
and the future of what God has yet to do to anchor followers of Jesus in the present. It's God's past faithfulness in history that gives us hope for the present and the future. The Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward to the grand finale where all things will be restored and renewed. That this is actually just an intermission before the final act. And James is reminding us to stay ready. He's pointing our eyes to the day that is coming when everything lost will be found. Every tear will be wiped away. And the worst trials and pains of this life will be forgotten in an instant. Just a few weeks ago, I had to stand up and preach my 25-year-old foster son's funeral who lost his life to addiction. And I could get up there and just say trite things that would maybe keep them afloat for 30 minutes at a service. But that's not gonna last. And only the resurrection hope and the living hope of the gospel is the one that actually looks death square in the face, looks at suffering for what it truly is, takes it on and absorbs it on our behalf to say one day this will not be how things are. Um, one of my favorite authors, J.R.L. Tolkien, in his uh, final book in the trilogy, uh, The Lord of the Rings, in The Return of the King, there's a moment, it's not in the movies, come on, should be. In The Return of the King, where Sam is confronted with Gandalf the White. And Gandalf the Grey, if you know the story, he dies, or at least we think he does, and then he rises and he comes back as Gandalf the White. And Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? And Gandalf responds and says, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed and it was a sound like music or like water in a parched land. I love that. Brothers and sisters, the settled future hope of the gospel is that one day all sad things will become untrue. That we can bear patiently and endure faithfully when we know that this is only temporary, that the judge is standing at the door, that this is just the intermission before the final act of the restoration of all things, where this isn't just going to be, everything's gonna be hunky-dory, but that all things are gonna be better than they ever have been, that there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth, that's gonna be a new everything. The entire story of scripture and redemption is that there is a God who has promised to guide history, not just to an end, but that to a new beginning. And this changes everything. So Springvale, the good old days are not behind us, but they're ahead of us. And when we remember this, we stay rooted. We stay ready. We live with a patient, expectant faith. And James is saying, wait, be ready, anticipate Lift up your head, fix your eyes on Jesus, that he is coming back to finish what he started. Hold on, it might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, but it is as certain as the breath in your lungs and he will finish what he started. Let me pray for us to that end. Gracious God, it's your kindness towards us that gives us moments like this where we get to respond to your goodness. 
First of all, I just thank you that we got to witness three lives this morning, the evidence of a resurrected hope and a living hope that you have done in their lives. And I pray for each of us who have maybe, we're following you. We have a real faith, but we've settled. We've settled or we're anxious or we're fraught with chronic pain or stressed relationships or mental and emotional health challenges or addiction, that right now you're living hope would break into this present moment and that you would renew us. And last, I pray for each of us who don't yet know you, Jesus, that today would be the day that we would acknowledge that the judge is standing at the door and one day we will acknowledge and answer for everything that we have done with the life that we've been gifted and that there is so much out of our control and the only thing that we can control is that we would surrender our lives to you. I pray that each of us whether we already are following you, Jesus, or have not yet, that today would be a day where we re-examine where we put our hope and that you would just cultivate humility and patient expectation in our heart and that we would live as a people who are ready, ready for the day that is coming where all sad things will become untrue because of what you have done, Jesus, and because of who you are. And we ask all these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen.